He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. And now the definition of insanity as, as it is in the big book. Lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. I can't think straight. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of Joe Hawk that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 309, and you are going to be hearing so much more from him in un momento, but first things first, this here, this here episode is brought to you by Terry and Todd and Kurt and an Anonymous and Lou and Audrey and Mary Lynn and Idaliza. What you may ask, did Terry and Todd and Kurt and Anonymous and Lou and Audrey and Mary Lynn and Idaliza do well. They went to our little website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yeller donate tab. Or what do you call that? A tab? No, button. I think it's a button. Sorry. They clicked on the yellow PayPal donate thingy bob. And they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Terry, Todd, Kurt, Anonymous, Lou, Audrey, Mary Lynn, and Idaliza. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. So I want to issue a, what do you call this, uh, a correction uh, an apology, but perhaps making amends. So the last, uh, so a couple of months ago, I saw my friend Curry with a, a shirt on during uh, one of my here AA meetings. Curry has actually been on the podcast in the past. You know, we recorded a great episode with him, but he was wearing this shirt uh, and I saw the shirt, and to me, being just your average dumb American, I thought the shirt, the shirt, excuse me, the shirt said, that's like, 
an alliteration, right? Like she shells, she shells by the she shore type thing. Anyway, I thought the shirt said Heco in Tejas, H-E-C-O, right? I cannot tell you how many emails, uh, comments on social media, um, and messages I got regarding my mispronunciation of the word hecko. Uh, I, I, I seem to mess it up in several different ways. And my friend Curry texted me because he had sent me a text actually instructing me on how to say the word hecko. Or anyway. And, and, and he said during his text, Dear John M., I finally heard you because our friend <laughs> Casey had told him about this. This is, you know, this podcast is all about me just having a good time with my friends. And hopefully we're helping a couple of people along the way. But he said in his text, uh, I, I, Dear John M., I finally heard you issuing a false correction on my behalf, saying that hecko is pronounced, <laughs> I don't know, echo, like E-C-H-O. And, and he says, my dear friend, that is unfortunately categorically false. And if you're really going to jack with my, and you're really going to jack with my street cred, <laughs> I didn't realize that Curry actually had street cred. Street cred. Uh, if anybody in El Paso ever hears it, the way you pronounce it is echo, like etch a sketch, except you don't really say the T in either version. Just imagine saying, and he, he's telling me how to pronounce it again, and he said, Casey texted you with your Spanglish being dead, a dead on or a comment or something like that. I actually think he said it was horrible. Something like that. Just here to let you know uh, that I agree. And, and And then he goes on to follow it up with, any Hispanic friends that I have are now gone. They have abandoned me. And he's talking about because he was teaching me how to say the word echo, echo, echo. You say potato, I say potato. But anyway, apparently it is echo. So, so I don't want Curry's Hispanic friends abandoning him. So I have come on here to publicly issue this correction, I guess is what you would call it, and say that I am sorry. Um, I can't guarantee that it'll never happen again because I'm not that focused on it during the week. But anyway, this here episode, or this here, the, the whole podcast, I should say, is Echo in Tejas. I think I got that right. All right. Now on to a little. Now here to what here here is what you're really here to listen to, and that is our. I, I'm gonna call him a guest because he's not really my guest. This is a 
reissuing of a recording. These are famous recordings that Joe Hawk, who has gone on to the big meeting in the sky, uh, recorded back at the Salvation Army in Santa Monica in 1987 over a 12-week period, and they're still listened to by millions of alcoholics around the world. So this is part three of that. Uh, enjoy Joe Hawk, and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy. I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Just to bring you up to date with what we've covered so far, we started the first week with the uh, title page. talks about three parts of the program, unity, recovery, and service. When I was about four and a half months dry, and my life wasn't going real well sober, I um, went to a man who started sharing this program with me from this big book. And uh, from the title page on, I saw that I'd only been in one part of the program. All I was was a member of the fellowship. And I thought going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous meant that I was in the AA. And I saw that that didn't, that wasn't true. Um, all that meant was was that I was a member of the fellowship and that was only one third of the program we talked about that and we talked about a little bit about the preface and the forewords and the, the history of this book a little bit we talked about that this is a precise way to recover and that was the main purpose of this book to show other alcoholics precisely how to recover but what I've tried to stay centered on is the first step so what we really got into at depth was the doctor's opinion. And we learned how to use every statement in the doctor's opinion as a question for me. Is this me? Do I believe this? Have I suffered from that craving that they talk about? When I take a drink, do I crave, do I crave more? And do I see that as physical? Can I admit that my body is, is sick? That my body suffers from an allergy to alcohol? We talked about an a, um, exercise with uh, Bill's story where you can take the first eight pages of Bill's story and mark everything that you can relate to. The way he thought, the way he drank, and the way he felt. You know, to answer a very important question that, that page 17 uh, follows with, uh, was I as hopeless as Bill? If you're looking at the physical part of your disease, why are you powerless over alcohol physically after you take a drink? You will find that from the doctor's opinion, through the exercise with Bill's story, and everything from page 17 to page 23. We answered that question on page 22 and page 23. And the way I make that statement into a question is this. Am I positive? That once I put alcohol into my system, something happens, both in the body and the mind, which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop. Does my experience abundantly confirm this? Does my body crave more when I put a little bit in it? Okay. We went from page 23 to page 30, looking at the mind. They said the observations about the body, that admission about my body, once I take a drink, 
That admission about my body is very important, but it's also academic and pointless if I never take that first drink, which will start that craving. So they got me into the second part of that first step. Why am I powerless over alcohol mentally when there's none in my system at all? I become obsessed. I become obsessed about having a drink. Some trivial thought comes into mind. After 20 days, a week, after a month, after six months, however long, can you look back through your drinking and see that the thought came after a period of dryness and that thought had more power than what you wanted earlier that morning. And even though earlier that morning or an hour ago or five minutes ago you really didn't want to drink, something happened up here that talked you into doing it again. An obsession, an idea that outweighs all other ideas. Or the ability that you and I have to believe a lie. This time it'll be different. What happened last time won't happen. So not only have we looked at my powerlessness after I put a drink in my system, we are now changing the perspective and we're looking at my powerlessness when there's none in my system at all. What is my head going to do to get me back to the first drink? Have I experienced that? Can I look back through my drinking and see the days where that happened? Like waking up in the morning with a firm resolution. You tell the old lady or the wife, listen, I really don't want to do what I did last night anymore and I'm not going to drink today. Or that solemn oath, I'm never going to do it again, honey. And then found yourself breaking her heart that night, repeating the same stuff. And something happened between leaving work and making it home. And you need to look at, was there a choice involved? Okay, a lot of you will think, yeah, there was. You know, I just made up my mind to go have a drink. Little did I know that I wasn't going to be able to stop and I was going to do what I did the night before and I was going to end up a, with a 502 or a DUI or getting in trouble or going to jail or breaking her heart. But yeah, it was just a mental choice. It was just a choice to get messed up again after not doing it for several hours or several days or several months. But what you really need to look at, was it really a choice? Or was it more like something that happened? You know, was it like you come to an intersection every day for a week and it's a dead end and you can either go left to the bar or right to home? And then maybe 28 days in a row you got to that street and you felt like you were kind of in control and you turned right and you went home. But somewhere in those 30 days the day came when you really wanted to turn right and go home and you ended up over at the bar and you have to ask yourself, was there really just a choice to drink? Or was it something that happened? Did I get struck drunk? Would I just find myself all of a sudden with a drink in front of me and then wondering how it happened? Was it really just a mental choice? Because that was one of my reservations when I started looking at this first step. What I came to was, yeah, I might be powerless over what happens after I take a drink. But what I do is, I just decide to drink again, and that puts the ball in my court, and I'm the one with the power. What I had to see was, although I do just change my mind sometimes, and it was just a choice, there are also a lot of times when it wasn't just a choice, because I didn't want to. At the end of the last chapter, there is a solution. I, I asked you to consider three words, because all three of them are going to become very important in this admission. 
the submission in the first step, the admission of powerlessness over alcohol. And those three words are power, control, and choice. And I'd like to, I'd like to look at those three words because this next page, page 30, is going to talk about control. And I think, to me, these three words are synonymous. I, I, I looked them up when I was new and I was going through this work. And, it, and with power, it talked about strength. And for control, they talked about ability. And for choice, they talked about two or more reasonable options. Okay? My contention is this. If you lose one of those three things, you've lost all three. If I've lost the power, I've lost control, I have no choice. I will drink. It's kind of like you take a guy sitting on a sofa and he's paralyzed from the neck down. You ask yourself, does that guy have the power to get up, walk to the door, and walk out of here a free man? Does he have the power to do that? No, no. Does he have the control to get up and walk out of this room? No. Okay, does he have a choice? No. So what is it going to take to get this guy off the sofa and get him out the door? It's going to take a power greater than himself. He doesn't have the power to pull that off. It might be two guys lifting him up under the arms and carrying him out of here. That's a power greater than himself. Okay, this book makes reference to, I'm just like that guy who's lost his legs. And it says, I never grow new ones. So how can I admit powerlessness in the first, in the first step, the admission of powerlessness over alcohol? How can I admit that I, I can see where I'll never have control over it and then sit here and say, but today I have a choice over alcohol? Or I ever did. You see, because somewhere in my drinking I lost the power and I lost control and I lost the choice over alcohol. I couldn't just wake up in the morning and say, well, today I choose not to drink and carry that out for very long. Like I said earlier, the longest I ever carried that choice out was 28 days. A couple times. I was never away from alcohol for 30 days for 17 years. So did I, did I have a choice? Did I reach a stage in my drinking when I couldn't just choose not to drink and pull that off? And did I reach a point in my drinking where it wasn't just choosing to drink? <clears throat> this page 30 is also going to talk about three other words that were important for me to look at and see the difference, but they're all the same. Obsession, illusion, and delusion. They're going to use those three words for the next uh, 13 pages, quite a bit. I was told that an obsession is like we talked about, the ability to believe a lie or an idea that comes to mind that outweighs all other ideas why I shouldn't. I was told that an illusion is a false or an erroneous perception of reality, what I see out here, you know, like an illusionist, like a magician does illusions in front of us what we see isn't really what he's doing so illusion is what I see out here that I that I warp and the delusion is to mislead the mind I do that in here I dilute myself I suffer from delusions of the mind 
This chapter talks about most of us being unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different. So we've looked at being bodily different, and I hope and I hope we've each in our own way come to that admission about the physical powerlessness. And now we're looking at being mentally different from our fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. Here's another description of an obsession. The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. This is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. How many in the room have suffered from that idea? Somehow, someday, I'm going to be able to control and enjoy my drinking. How many? Mm -hmm. The persistence of this illusion that we're going to control it and enjoy it is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. How many pursued that illusion that you were going to be able to control and enjoy your drinking right up to the gates of insanity and death? We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. How many of you that have been in AA before have sat in meetings and heard people say, the first step doesn't have anything to do with admitting you're alcoholic. It has to do with admitting that you're powerless. I've heard that a lot. This says that we have to fully concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholic and that this is the first step. Now they talk about a delusion. And I think if there's one thing that I've suffered from since alcohol and drugs are no longer a problem is this delusion right here. The delusion that I'm like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Okay, what do they mean by that? I'm starting to see that I'm not like other people once I put some booze in my system. And I'm also starting to see that I'm not like other people when it comes to my mind with booze and drugs. My mind talks me into doing something that's killing me and getting me in trouble. But why do they say, or presently maybe? To me that means now. Presently. Sober. I'm not like other people. You take my neighbor on a Monday morning and convince him that a certain behavior that he's doing is killing him and causing problems in his life, and by 5 o'clock Monday afternoon, if he, made a, if he made a decision not to do that behavior anymore, his mind isn't trying to talk him into doing it again. Mine is. Normal people, when they don't feel emotionally well, don't go do something that's caused problems every time they do it. So I'm not only physically different after I put some in my system and mentally different when I, put, when, I, when I don't have any in my system at all and I become obsessed about it, I'm emotionally different because my emotions will dominate me back to something that's going to kill me. And I'm spiritually different. Sober. Now. Today. And if I, would, if I could say one sentence in this book that summarizes every problem I've had since I've gotten sober and the problem with alcohol and drugs has been removed, I would say it's the delusion that I'm like other people. See, I think I can do what my neighbor can do with resentment. I can hold on to it for a while. I can get revenge. I can retaliate. 
I can wallow in it. He can do that. Can I? I think I can do what he can do with fear. I think I can treat people the way he does. I think I can drive the way he does. I think I can lie the way he does. And there's the summary of all the problems I've had. I think I'm like other people. I think I'm like normal people. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. The amount I take once I start and staying stopped. Those are really the only two points you have to look at in this, in this first step. Can you control the amount you take once you start? And can you control staying stopped? All of us felt at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. How many of us know about pitiful and incomprehensible? We don't even understand it. What happens to our morals? How many of us found us saying things on a Monday? I'll never do that. Doing it once, feeling a little bit guilty, and then a couple months later doing it with relatively with ease. What happens to my morals? They slowly deteriorate. What was absolutely unacceptable to me two years ago during my drinking, I'm doing. A couple years later. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. How many in here looking at the progression of your disease see where it got better over the years? We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree. There's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And that was written in 1939. Science hasn't done that yet either. Let's go back to that, that, that paragraph on the previous page, We Alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And let's substitute the word choice for control and see if it doesn't fit. <clears throat> we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the choice with alcohol. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers choice. All of us felt at times that we were regaining choice, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less choice. See, I think those words are synonymous. I admit my powerlessness. I see where I will never have control over alcohol. It's not going to get any better. But I'm going to sit here and say today I have a choice. You see, somewhere during my drinking I lost that kind of power. And I also chose a loving God at the second step who loves me more than to give me a choice over something that's going to kill me. The great promise of the 10th step is that the problem will be removed, and if the problem is, has been removed, there is no choice in a fit spiritual condition. Now, I'm not saying I can't slip back into that, that insanity, that maybe I have a choice. But I'm saying in a fit spiritual condition, why would I even choose? That assumes I'm the one with the power and I'm just going to make a choice. 
And if I take a drink, where's the choice? And if I don't take a drink, where's the choice? And there's more freedom in that. Some people think that sounds kind of uh, binding or restrictive. I experienced when that went from my head, a simple idea at this first step, and then going through the work and somewhere around the ninth step or somewhere in there a little while later after doing some work, when that went from here to here, within and became part of my experience, I felt a great weight lifted. All of a sudden I realized the battle was over. That I had made a decision in the third step to turn my will and my life over to the care of God and my will is to drink. We'll come back to some of that a little later. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they're in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, we will try to prove, our, prove ourselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. Look back through your drinking and look at all the self-deception. What do they call it nowadays? Denial? And experimentation that you tried to convince yourself you really weren't an alcoholic. The bottom of the page is a little test if you're starting to have reservations. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Two drinks a day for 30 days, no more, no less. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It won't take long for you to decide whether you're alcoholic or not. If you are honest with yourself about it, it may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. See, now I would never suggest that to anybody until we went all the way through this first step. Because I think you can get a full knowledge of your condition in the framework of this work. But if all else fails, that is a consideration. And you don't have to do it to consider that. Is there anyone in this room that thinks they could take two drinks a day for 30 days? No more, no less. Hmm? Okay. Maybe you need to. Maybe you need to try that. Huh? So self-will could keep you. Self-will, uh, sufficient reason. Uh huh. Okay. That's the normal reaction for a real alcoholic. A normal drinker would not be terrified by that proposition. A normal drinker would have all the confidence in the world and say, sure, sure I could do it. But when that was presented to me for consideration, that was my reaction. Because I know in my heart of hearts, I might be able to do it for a week, I might not. But I know that in one of those days, something will happen and I won't be able to tell you how many more I'm going to have when it will end or what I'll do in between I know that that the day will come I will lose control over the amount once I take two drinks which is scarier knowing that that would happen on the first day or not knowing when that would happen now through this story they're going to give examples I mean through this chapter they're going to give stories for examples and each of us finds ourselves in different degrees in each story. I certainly don't find myself in the guy that was 30 and doing a lot of spree drinking 
and then deciding to stay sober and staying sober for 25 years. I mean, I was 30 when I got here and I was done. But I find similarities. A belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Now, I haven't had a long period, like 25 years, but in the short time that I have had, there has been that crazy idea that maybe now that I've done it for five years, four years, three years, maybe now it'll be different. And that's the same idea that used to creep in there whenever I left treatment. The same idea that creeped in there when I left the penitentiary. Now that I've been sober for a while, can I kind of start again? Can I, can I kind of start over? The bottom of the page talks about gathering all his forces he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. I relate to that. I tried that. I tried that several times. Every means of solving his problem which, were, which money could buy were at his disposal. I, I can surely relate to that. I tried everything that money could buy. Every attempt failed. I can relate to that. So what I'm asking you to do is use the stories in this chapter the same way you used Bill's story. Look for the similarities. Put aside the differences. Bottom of the next paragraph talks about if you're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation or any lurking notion that you will one that you that someday you will be immune to alcohol. To me, that means do I th do I have any reservation or any lurking notion that I will ever react to alcohol any differently physically? or that I'll be able to control it. That's a must. They tell me there must be no reservation about that. So what do I face in the first step? What do I face in the first step of my reservations about am I really an alcoholic? And you can face those reservations within the process rather than having to try to drink again. Because some people die trying that. There's another test on page 34 that I like better which was a great test for me because I was never able to pass it. Third, fourth line from the top. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. Okay, does anybody in here think they could leave liquor alone altogether for one year? Uh-huh. Next paragraph. There's a very important idea about choice. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Altogether. Forever. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. I met a man when I was new and he was 19 years sober and he said, God doesn't keep me sober. He said, I wake up every morning and I choose not to drink and I've been doing that for 19 years. But I'm working with this sponsor and we're talking about choice and I'm looking back through my drinking and I'm seeing I don't have that kind of power because I was real close to getting ready to drink and it wasn't going to be a choice. And I somewhere in my drinking reached a point where I couldn't just choose not to drink. But here's this guy who sounded like he was pretty bad. He said for 19 years all he's done is choose not to. And here's where I found in the bullshit sifter, here's where I found what described him and what described me. 
he was able to quit upon a non-spiritual basis because he hadn't gone to the extent that I had. I wasn't. I started seeing that I cannot quit on a non-spiritual basis because I've gotten to the point where I've lost the power to choose whether I was going to drink. It was more than a choice. It was something I was powerless over. Or not. I couldn't just choose to keep myself sober. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I've heard a lot of people say the insanity of alcoholism is picking up the first drink. That's not what the next part of this book is going to say. Okay, granted, it, is, it would be insane for me to pick up the first drink, but when would the insanity occur? Okay, I was at a detox in uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, and um, the leader of the meeting was six and a half years sober and he wanted to talk about he wanted to drink. And he talked about that to the point where everybody was getting so uncomfortable because there was about 40 patients. And he started calling on him, and of course that's what they wanted to talk about. They wanted to drink too. And I hadn't been sober that long. After about 40 minutes of that, I was getting uncomfortable. And he called on me, and there was one other visitor, and I shared, and there was one other visitor in the back of the room, and he called on this guy from the Indian Reservation in, um, in, from Wyoming or Montana or somewhere. And um, this guy started telling this story, and his voice was so powerful, although it was quiet, that in about two words of his story, he had the whole room turned around looking at him. And all he said was this. He introduced himself, and he said, You know, I heard about a guy who walked in a bar one time and ordered a shot of whiskey and a beer, and left the shot of whiskey and, and, and then drank the beer, and then ordered another shot of whiskey and another beer and drank the whiskey and drank the beer and then ordered another shot of whiskey and another beer and drank the shot and drank the beer and did this all night. And at the end of the night, the bartender said, I'm really wondering why you left that first shot of whiskey. And the guy said to the bartender, well, some people in Alcoholics Anonymous told me if I didn't take the first drink, I wouldn't get drunk. And I think there's more to the first step than that. And he passed. I said, thank you. The whole room was floored. One of the most powerful things I ever saw. Because this next page says, at the top of the page, so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. You see, I don't know when it will happen. See, the insanity could start today, and I could slowly clear away everything that stands between me and booze, and find myself taking a drink in, in six years. It could start today and maybe only take 10 seconds. It could start today and take 12 hours. But I do know that even if it's only a few seconds before I pick it up, the insanity occurs before I pick up the first drink at my very best. See, this is where they started bringing me out from behind the bottle. And I didn't even know I was doing it. Yes, I had started putting aside some of my excuses. I'd stopped blaming. You know how we all blamed something for the way we were? I started putting aside, okay, maybe it's not mommy and daddy. Maybe it's not those guys. Maybe it's not because I went to the penitentiary. My God, I was drinking six years before I ever went to the penitentiary. 
Maybe it's not that school, that environment. I started putting some of, some of my excuses that I used to want to blame for why I turned out the way I did aside, but I was still hiding behind the oldest excuse of all time, and I didn't even know it. And a man did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He asked me to make a list of the ten craziest things I ever did. And I sat down and I made this list and every one of them was under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Beat her up drunk, committed an armed robbery under the influence, drunk, 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 drunk. You see what I'm doing there with that? You see what I'm doing there with that? I'm justifying the insanity behind the booze and the drugs. And this guy shook his head and he laughed and he looked at me and he said, I'll bet you 10,000 bucks right now that the number one thing on that list, the number one thing you should have on that list every time you did it, you were absolutely bone dry, nothing in your system, at your very best. And I realized that day they brought me out from behind the booze and I realized the most insane act that I ever committed was 28 days out of the penitentiary with nothing in my system, I walked across the street from a parole officer's office into a bar and picked up a drink. And I did that on my own, at my very best, with every sufficient reason in the world not to. When things were going good, I commit the most insane act of my life. The next example is of a guy who takes the first three steps and stops and drinks. Here's a guy they told him what they knew about alcoholism. And the answer, step two. And he made a beginning, step three. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. He agreed he was a real alcoholic. He took step one. And in serious condition, he knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for her. He had a deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. You read through these stories and you find yourself. And you'll find he was restless. And he was irritable. And he was discontented. And he was hungry. Still no thought of drinking. And then you'll see the example of that thought come into mind suddenly. The thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. See, the insanity was sudden. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into my milk. Then what does the truth, how does the truth come? Vaguely. The insanity comes suddenly. The sanity comes vaguely. I sensed I was being, not being any too smart, but felt reassured by the lie. I was taking whiskey on a full stomach. What things in that example have more power, the truth or the lie? The insanity or the insanity? He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. And now the definition of insanity as, as it is in the big book. Lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. I can't think straight. I'm rubber-minded. Thought A... I don't want to drink today. Thought B, I can do that. Something comes between A and B and I end up way over here at C. I can't think straight. I can't think from, from point A to point B and get myself there. 
Some crazy idea sneaks in there and it has more power than my best thinking. We've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always that curious mental phenomena, something we don't understand that goes on in our mind, that would run right along, parallel with our best thinking. There inevitably ran some insanely, insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink, and my best thinking failed to hold me in check. The insane idea won out. Next paragraph talks about the justification, being justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy. How many, is it, how many of us have drank behind those things? Anger, worry, depression, jealousy? Even with this type of beginning, are we obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened? It's gotten me in trouble and sent me to jail the last ten sprees I went on, but I'm so upset and I'm so angry and I'm so depressed that this time it's going to be different. There was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrible consequences might be. This example is of somebody who reflects on the consequences and what the outcome is going to be and the justification. The next story is where I found my insanity. I found myself in this next one, the jaywalker, who every time he gets out of the hospital thinks he can do it again and gets the same results, each time a little bit worse. And you go through that story of the jaywalker, and every time they talk about jaywalking, you put in there drinking or drugging and see if it doesn't fit you. However intelligent I may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, I have been strangely insane. You see, I started hearing that word insanity when they, when they were talking about the first and second step, and I wanted to say, no, not me. I don't belong in a state hospital, shock treatment, Thorazine. They said, no, 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 that's not the kind of insanity we're talking about. We're talking about the insanity where alcohol is concerned. You know, how come I have a mind where if I stick my hand on a hot stove once and burn it really good, and I say, hey, I'm not ever going to put my hand on that stove again. How come I can pull that off? How come I can keep myself from putting my hand on a hot stove after getting burned once? But how come I get burned over and over and over by booze and I can't keep myself from doing it? Where alcohol and drugs are concerned, I'm strangely insane because I suffer from obsessions. This time it'll be different. What happened last time won't happen. Or, in a minute here, we're going to see an example. Maybe I don't think at all. Maybe I don't think much at all about what's going to happen. Page 39 talks about, do you think you can quit drinking on the basis of self-knowledge? Do you think there's enough you can learn about yourself and based on that knowledge of yourself, stop drinking? I pursued that one all the way to the hilt degree in college, psych, 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 social work, drugs and alcohol, working as a therapist in a treatment center, 10 different treatment centers. I thought I was going to get some piece of information that was going to explain it all, and then armed with that information, I would be able to figure it out and stop. It was futile. The next story about Fred is a guy who wouldn't even admit the first step. But he tried to make up his mind to quit drinking forever. 
it never occurred to him that he that perhaps he could not do that he didn't take the first step and he didn't take the second step he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself he was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life self-knowledge would fix it and you'll see what happened to him <clears throat> he talks about it on page 41 that he went to his hotel leisurely dressed for dinner now let's watch the progression of the insanity as I crossed the threshold of the dining room the thought came to mind that if I it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner that was all nothing more and he ordered a drink it was real easy it was real easy for him to buy the lie he didn't have much to push aside he didn't even think he was alcoholic the bottom paragraph talks about as soon as, as soon as I regained my ability to think that's trouble right there I went carefully over the evening in Washington not only had I been off guard I'd made no fight whatever against the first drink this time I had not thought of the consequences at all I just found myself in a bar I think the the bottom line of that page really sums up this part of the first step for me if I have an alcoholic mind I will drink again I hear a lot of people say the first step for them is I can't drink I think they're missing some real freedom and some real admission the bottom line of the first step for me is on my own left to my own devices on my own power I will drink again if my mind isn't treated in a, in a dramatic way through these 12 steps like an entire psychic change if the mind that came to AA five years ago wasn't changed if those obsessions that gnawed on me you know that's why it's so hard for me to talk to new people sometimes because I know that that obsession is on them and it's just gnawing at them almost every day because I was that way when I came to treatment and the idea that you can tell someone that that can literally be removed and that you don't ever have to suffer from that obsession that gnawing obsession that's just on your back ever again that was like a dream to me that was like a fantasy I certainly didn't believe that could happen because I'd lived with it for about the last nine ten years of my drinking you mean that obsession can literally be removed that's what these that's what these first nine steps are all about He later makes some admissions on page 42, five lines from the top. <clears throat> After the experience he had, he knew from that, from that moment that he had an al alcoholic mind, and he saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I'd never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then. Two people came to see him. They asked him if he thought himself an alcoholic and if he was really licked this time. He had to concede both propositions. They piled on him heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited case out of their own, cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. There's the bottom line of the first step. You go through this first step and ask yourself, has this first step process snuffed out 
snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that you can do the job yourself. And if you can answer that, then it's time to go on. And that also reaffirms that you don't have to drink again to find that out, that this process can do that. I think people that tell someone to go drink to find out before they put some effort into it and spend some time with that person and do what these two guys did, I think they're selling the process short. I think they're people with not much faith in this process of the first step. Because I think if you sit down and you do with somebody what's in this book, what these two guys that came to see, these two guys from Alcoholics Anonymous did with this guy in this example. See, I want the easy way out. Someone doesn't believe right away, I want to tell them, oh, go, go, go drink and find out. But if I'm willing to take the time and the effort and sit down with somebody and help them look back through their life at all the things that we've covered in these first 43 pages, I have enough faith in this process to know that this process can get you to the first step. Then they outline the spiritual answer, step two, and the program of action which a hundred of them had followed successfully, three through twelve. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow, but the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. I was asked to use that as a prayer. I was asked to use a prayer at this point. Please let everything I think I know about myself, my disease, this program, and these steps, and you, God, be put aside for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, this program, and you. And it's a very powerful prayer. We sometimes have more trouble with people that have been around the program for a while and either made it or not made it in going through these steps because they have a lot of stuff to unlearn that hasn't worked. Now, I'm not asking for that stuff to be thrown away. I'm asking for that stuff to be put aside for, a new, for an open mind and a new experience knowing that whatever is true, whatever is of God, will come back anyway. He talks about quite as important as this knowledge about himself and this decision he made and, and the program of action being outlined was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. You know, how many people do we hear in AA say, this program is just about not drinking? And then deny God in every other area of their life. Well, he certainly can't do anything over here. And he certainly can't do anything in my family or my business or, or any of this. This tells me that spiritual principles and the power, the power of God that we get to tap into in this program can solve all my problems. Yet, I want to deny that. I was real confused by this next statement until I looked back at the ideas about choice. He says here, I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, See, we're not bad. We're not bad trying to get good. We're sick trying to get well. But I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. Now here's the statement. I would not go back to it even if I could. What is he saying there? I would not go back to it even if I could. There was no choice. You'll find another story at the end of the next chapter 
on the last page of the chapter to the agnostic where a guy says the same thing and they say what is this but a miracle of healing this book repeats itself and we've looked at some of the same stuff over and over but after next week we're not going to look at the symptoms anymore all we've done in looking at the body can you control the amount you drink once you start and all we've done in looking at the mind can you control staying stopped all we've done is look at the symptoms of alcoholism and that's about all I find in the 17 years that I drank and drugged from here on we're going to look at the rest of the steps and we're finally at step four going to get down to the root the spiritual sickness that was there before you ever took a drink but once more they're going to repeat themselves and they're going to sum up everything we've covered from page 23 to page 43 about the mind once more the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink except in a few rare cases neither he nor any other human being nor any other human being can provide such a defense his defense must come from a higher power yet I'm going to choose the group to be my higher power after I've just seen that no human power is going to provide me that defense now if that's all you can choose when you're new that's fine but the day will come when you'll see you will need something more than human power to carry this out I had a roommate in Denver when I was newly sober who chose a lamppost as a higher power and we were sitting in a meeting one night and he looked out the window at the storefront meeting and he saw a dog peeing on a lamppost and he figured he better change his conception you'll find that the the first paragraph on the next page sums up the, the two points we've looked at really well they've taken 44 pages plus the doctor's opinion to help you look at the two points they're going to summarize in one paragraph in the preceding chapters and this is really where we can start to use the book and see every statement as a question and answer them ourselves so let's read this in the preceding chapters have you learned something about alcoholism have they made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic and then here's the two points repeated again when you honestly wanted to did you find you couldn't quit entirely could you control staying stopped or if when drinking did you have little control over the amount you drank you're probably alcoholic if that be the case and here's what you can think about till next week if that be the case do you believe you're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer gotta love joe hawk once again that was recorded many many moons ago and it is still heard by alcoholics all over the world uh god bless you joe hawk hope to meet you at the big meeting in the sky one day and now on to a little bit of a uh, listener feed back um the first bit of listener feedback here i'm going to play you a voicemail and this is from james s i want to let you hear this my name is jim s i'm an alcoholic addict first i want to thank john m and silver speak for giving me the opportunity to carry the message i have three tdcj numbers and one oklahoma doc number uh yeah i'm not a real quick learner I recently received parole after serving eight and a half years on a 16-year sentence. 
about four years into this eight and a half years that I served, I had a moment of clarity. I got honest with myself, probably first time in my entire life. And that honesty was that I knew that if they released me that day, I was going to reoffend. Not because I wanted to, however, because I knew and accepted that when it came to drinking and using, I couldn't stay stopped. And staying stopped forever, well, that was my only hope if I wanted to stay out of prison. I had what they called at that time a gift of desperation. And I turned to AA with an open mind and a willingness to learn, forgetting and setting aside some of my old prejudices. I wrote the general service office and asked if they could find me a sponsor. A nice lady named Brenda wrote me back, and she told me she couldn't find me a sponsor, but she could find me a silver contact. I was contacted by Jeff C., who did eventually become my sponsor. And through mail, secures emails, phone calls, and visits, my sponsor Jeff was there to guide me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, a.k.a. the big book. Not only did I start to have days, months, and years of sobriety in my rear rear mirror, I experienced change through the practice of a practical program applying it in my life one day at a time. I started to experience recovery in my life, a return to health. I started living a life of service to others. This was noticed by the warden and the chaplain. And when a program called Life Coach came to our unit, I was picked to become a life coach. My job became serving others. I really enjoyed it, man. Joy and peace and serenity entered in my life in a place where I felt it was impossible. I really thought that I had to wait until I was released to have them things. I really thought that I had to wait until I was released to work the 12 steps. I'm so glad I didn't wait. The 12 steps, well, they work if you work them and they work where you work them. I'm very grateful to this program today. Uh, I have a local, I have a sponsor. I have a fellowship. Uh, I have a design for living that works in rough going. I have a home group. I'm making friends. I fit in. I'm accepted. I belong. If you're in prison now, don't put the miracle off. Get a sponsor, work the steps, go to meetings, and help others. Listen to Sober Speak. If you are on the outside and maybe you're hesitant about going into a correctional facility, well, don't be. But still, if you are, maybe being a silver contact for an inmate through correspondence is a way you can be of service. Contact a GSO through mail or the website. And in closing, I want to encourage you all, take your thoughts of change and helping others today. Put them into action and have a great experience. Thank you, Jim S. Thank you, James, for your inspiration. Thank you for your kind words. And I'm so, so happy that you have been able to reach so many people with your service. Uh, God bless you. Keep me updated, my friend. Um, but that was just fantastic to hear your voice. Uh, Nancy writes in, and Nancy says... 
Oh, this is called, she says, episode number 307 is the, mm, the subject line. I'm sorry, I got distracted there by some, some people that came into the, into the house, into the other room adjacent from, um, <laughs> In Studio AA. Anyway, Nancy says, Hey, John, can you please tell me how to reach Alan, who just did your uh, podcast? He, She's talking about the episode number 307. It's called A Healthy Relationship with Alan. And um, gosh, if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. He's, uh, she says, he mentioned that he had a podcast, and I'd love to know what it's called. Uh, it was heartfelt and honest, and I gained so much from listening to that episode. Thanks, Nancy L. Well, as you know, Nancy, I got you in contact with him, and Alan B. is just a, a great guy, and he is really putting the principles of this program to work uh, in a difficult uh, portion, uh, portion, a difficult part in his life chapter, maybe I should say. But anyway, thanks for writing in, Nancy. Uh, Allie, or it could it's probably Ali writes in, A-L-A. Ali writes in and he says, hey, John, I'm currently re-listening to a Bill C episode and dropped him the message below. He copied me on what he sent over. I couldn't do that without also messing, messaging you to say a massive Thank you. Sober Speak has been a huge part of my recovery, a meeting between meetings and a huge source of learning for me, especially on the steps. It took me two rehabs to eventually find my way into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm now coming up on 18 months sober. Good for you, Ollie. It's been an amazing, challenging, rewarding, tough journey. Gosh, do I relate to that? But my life is so much better than it was. Man, I just got a little emotional thinking about the first 18 months of my sobriety, Ali. Thank you very much for reminding me of that. Um, in that, I actually now have found a life and take part in life. A man was put in my path with 45 years of sobriety, and I plucked up the courage to ask him to take me through the steps. He did it in exactly the way your episodes on the steps uh, described and he took me through the big book uh, to ensure that I followed the instructions set out despite me of course thinking that I had a better way of doing it. I am now sponsoring my first person through the steps myself. It has been such a rewarding experience. I'm based in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland, a place that has been a strong contributor to, <laughs> to the people of our fellowship. Ha uh -huh. <laughs> ha. Yes. A Bill C. Calls. Uh, Ireland, <laughs> the birthplace of alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Anyway, Ali says, thank you so much for sober speaking your service, John. It is invaluable. Ali K. <laughs> well, thank you. And, uh, uh, you've got a fertile ground there in Ireland to, uh, help people with alcoholism. Uh, that's kind of funny, kind of not right. But anyway, thanks for writing in Ali. Bartell writes in, he says, hi, John, I am in Wilmington, North Carolina, and after attending, he didn't put like a 
an accent in there. Uh, I, I added that myself. And he said, and after attending a treatment facility in Greensboro, North Carolina, I have begun my new journey into sobriety. My sobriety date is, where do I get that from? Uh, 520, 2023. Oh, you know, I know where I get that from. It's, you know, when they do the thing on, uh, (laughs) family feud, where they're, <laughs> they put up, I don't know, six answers or whatever it is, and the answer is, uh, I don't know, just came to mind. But anyway, Bartell says, I chose to undergo the treatment, uh, to undergo treatment for several reasons. One was more of the legal variety. The offer was so I could get healthier and live a better life. Something my late father made me promise to do for myself before he passed in December. I can honestly say that I am much better after the beginning of this journey. I am currently working with my sponsor on step nine, and I enjoy your podcast very much, and I find them quite useful when I'm working through the 12 and 12. I found your website along with another one through my iPhone, and in trying to get a different point of view on some of the steps beyond what you read in the text, I wanted to hear someone's point of view and story. I look forward to hearing more about AA through your podcast and speakers. Thank you so much for your time and dedication and setting this up for all of us to benefit from. Well, thank you, Bartel. I'm glad that you were getting some insight uh, from the various speakers that we bring on here. That was the whole point of this in the beginning. And uh, uh, thank you for listening. Francis writes in and Francis says, Hi, John. I live in Wichita, Kansas. My DOS, I had to think about that one for a moment, a date of sobriety, I'm sure, is 2-7-1994. I found your site through Google. My home group is UIR, which comes from oh, which comes from an unsuspected inner resource. Now that is a cool name for a group. Let me read that again. My home group is UIR, which comes from an unsuspected inner resource found in the back of the big book. Yes. In the spiritual experience, uh, AA is the last thing that I tried and it's the first thing that worked very good. That's a very short email, but a lot of good chunks of wisdom in there, Francis, and some humor too. I love that unsuspected inner resource is the name of your home group. If you're out there in Wichita, Kansas, and you're listening to this, and you are part of the unsuspected inner resource group, please give Francis a hug for us, all right? Emma writes in, and Emma says, hi, John. Thank you for allowing me into the Facebook group. Well, Emma, the pleasure and the honor is all ours. She says, I live in the, I live in Shrop. Shire, I hope I'm pronouncing that white, right, white, <laughs> sounded like, anyway, I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing that white, I'm sounding like I have a, a lisp or something there, anyway, she says, um, 
By the way, whenever I hear the word Emma, I'm always thinking it's going to be somebody from the United Kingdom. I know it's not always like that. And we have plenty of Emmas here in the United States, and I'm sure you do in Australia and New Zealand and everywhere else as well. But, uh, I, you know, I always it always strikes me as a... Uh, uh, UK kind of name. Uh, and she says, anyway, I found Sober Speak through John Robbins sharing on the How Do You Cope with Ellis and John podcast. Yes, I'm familiar with that. We've got a lot of folks who wrote in uh, after he shared on that podcast. And he says, episode, with two ni- episode number 298 with Scott L., really stuck with me and I really enjoy the Joe and Charlie Big Book Comes Alive episodes. I find myself coming back to the Joe and Charlie ones in particular when I need some extra motivation. I have tried to cut down on my drinking many times and thought I could moderate myself, but I've now come to terms with the fact that I cannot. I am now trying to follow the AA program, and I've joined two online Zoom meetings in the past week. I haven't had the confidence to share in them so far, but I'm learning a lot just listening at the moment. Thank you so much for Sober Speak. I am finding it very supportive and interesting. Best wishes, Emma. Well, best wishes back at you, Emma. Hi, everybody. That is Uno Mas episode in the tank. Not the tank. In the can. Uh, We do this one week at a time. I hope to be back next week. So God bless all all of you. Uh, until then, what do I say? Gosh, how come I can never remember what I say at the end of an episode? And, and you know, a really, really good podcaster would actually write this down so they don't have to think about it every time. Anyway, uh, uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. Love you guys. Bye.